Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and each week we have the pleasure of talking to someone who is building a more humane world from the inside out. And today my guest is a an old friend of mine, Bob Bolt from Jefferson City. He's the producer and director of DeBolt Productions. It does uh, a variety of old poetry, publication, photographs, videos. Bob, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Wonderful. Ready and willing. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Well, you know, we've bumped into each other so for so many years and uh, I don't know why you haven't come up on the list before, but I'm so glad you're here today. And I, I think part of the motivation that I've had is uh, we were at a poetry gathering together recently and you shared uh, four issues of a uh, magazine from Lincoln University's uh, Arts and Letters uh, called Under One Sun in which you had several poems, short stories, etc. And I was just taken with the whole uh, four issues and, and just consumed, particularly what you wrote. And, and so I'm just really excited that you're with us today. Would you like to introduce yourself any differently than I just did? <laughs> well, I, I don't know where to start, you know. Um... How did Charles Dickens say in, in the beginning, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was born, but uh, you know, I don't want to go quite, that, that was 83 years ago, by the way, come last December 1st. I was born and raised in and around Chicago and uh, regarded myself as a, uh, say, an inveterate Chicagoan. Uh, I love the city. I still love the city. It's changed a lot, but about 25 years ago, my wife and I came to Jefferson City. She's a very avid environmentalist. And she was actually working for the city of Chicago, Department of Environment. And the Biodiesel Association kind of stole her away. And of course, their offices are here, you know, off the highway here on, uh, uh, in Jefferson City. Well, she headed up the nonprofit, the not-for-profit educational part of biodiesel, just trying to uh, inform people about energy alternatives. But I came here and of course there was very little film production work. I think at the time there were about five or six film producers in the Columbia Jeff City area. But um, I was able to, to get some work done and also worked a lot with, with the Access uh, people. They had some really good editing facilities. And of course I'm a great believer in Access Television. I was one of the, I don't know you call me a founder, but I was, I was one of the first enrollees in the Chicago uh, cable access network. They're still thriving, going very well. There's some, they do some excellent labor programs and social consciousness, peace programs, things like that. I became really interested in the creative writing program at Lincoln. Of course, that program is uh, the poetry aspect of it is run by Eli Burrell. I think you know Eli, uh, an excellent published poet. And uh, initially, the, uh, the first person I met was Greg Brounderville who is now a nationally recognized poet, but he uh, he had about a three or four year tenure at Lincoln. And unfortunately, SMU 
Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, kind of hired him out from under Lincoln. I didn't, I didn't think that Brownerville would last very long in, uh, in, uh, in Jeff City, but he loved the town and he especially loved the fact that Lincoln was basically a, a land grant, uh, dominantly black college because he had a real affinity with, uh, with black consciousness. I've been very actively involved for the last 25 years in taking both poetry and fiction classes. Darren Dean is the current uh, creative fiction uh, writer. He's a published, again, a published novelist. And he's an excellent poet, too. Also an excellent novelist and short story writer. So I'm just really happy with, with the, uh, the kind of education I'm getting at Lincoln, my continuing education. I mean, I, I'm going to be enrolling in some college program until they throw dirt in my face because I just love the idea of learning and creating. I mean, I think I've done about 500 poems now in the course of my, my tenure there, my, my enrollment there. And uh, I hopefully have gotten better, but uh, that's, that's an inspirational thing. I'm, another thing I'm looking forward to, before this pandemic hit, I was involved with several organizations that were trying to organize poetry readings and, and fiction readings in the Jeff City area. Of course, the pandemic put an end to all that, but now that we're starting to emerge on the other side of it, I am really looking for venues where we can, uh, you you and I, I mean, you, you're an excellent poet, and we have a little retinue of people here, here in Jeff City who are kind of making a name for themselves. So I'd like to look for possibilities of, do, of resuming uh, poetry readings and resuming uh, fiction readings, things like that. The, I think the audience is ready for it. I mean, it was always well attended. Even at the library, we had some readings at the at the, at the uh, Missouri River Regional Library here in Jeff City. I wondered if it was all right for me or you to read one of your poems from Arts and Letters Journal in 2012 called Her Name Means Apricot Blossom. There are two poems in that, in that issue that basically uh, I was trying to write from another person's viewpoint. I find it, you have to put your consciousness in someone else's uh, brain, so to speak. And there, I think there are two poems in there. You might want to read both of them. They're short poems. But one involves a Vietnamese woman who, uh, who has a, a baby who was uh, born, born deformed as a result of Agent Orange. And she's uh, just describing her, her trying to get to her cousin's house to rest for the night sort of thing. It started out as, as a diatribe against Monsanto. And I, I, worked, I worked it through so much that there's only a very minimal mention of it. One of the problems with a lot of poetry is that it becomes very, uh, very didactic and preachy. And I didn't want to become preachy. I wanted to get inside that woman's head and describe her feelings, her emotions. So if you want to take that as an introduction, go ahead and read it. Uh, I'd be honored. Her name means Apricot Blossom by Bob Bolt. Hong Han stops to rest on the road to Ho Chi Minh City. Through the heavy afternoon air, she carries her son, a legless, armless trunk of a boy, in an improvised backpack. The war is nearly forgotten now. What is its memory next to tired feet, choking dust, the weight of her beloved burden? Robed monks pass in silence, she drops a coin in their bowl. The gods are now as remote from her as the men who mixed the poisons 
who killed the crops, made the animals sick, birthed all the misshapen children. Slowly, she rises to complaining joints. If she makes her cousins before nightfall, there will be rice and a warm place to sleep. Oh, thank you. I believe her first Cro-Magnon is another poem that's in there. It's actually a poem about the, uh, the thoughts and the words of a Neanderthal on her first meeting with the new species, the Homo erectus uh, Cro-Magnon, who are, they're basically genetically identical to uh, Homo sapiens at this point. But uh, the thing that I really liked about it is I've been reading a lot about the cracking of the DNA code, the Neanderthal DNA code. There's a guy in Basel, I think, that's doing remarkable genetic research. There's evidence of conflict between Neanderthal and Cro-Magnons, but there's also evidence of crossbreeding, so to speak, that we actually contain Neanderthal DNA. And I just wanted to go back in time and speculate about what it must have been like to meet a completely different species, you know, ostensibly even maybe a superior species, although that's been debated too. But, you know, what would it be like if we were to meet an alien species from a flying saucer? Uh, it was kind of like what went through this Neanderthal woman's mind when she saw the first Homo sapien, basically. So anyway, that's the background of the poem. Her first Cro-Magnon by Bob Bolt. I never forgot the day I first saw him. Sinew and muscle stretched thin over bone like a rabbit's shank, and a long shank it was. Black against the squinting sky, he was looking down into me, a curved stick in his hand. He moved like a deer, leaping among the rocks, stalking in the trees along Snow Bear Lake. I ran back to tell my kin. I tried to show them how he leaped, but I couldn't. Later they came upon us. They were as beautiful as their weapons, except their eyes, cold and mad, not like any animals we had seen. All this was many suns ago, many hunts and many deaths. Yet I remember that day I first saw him, dark and thin, stretched against the rising sun. Thank you. Every class, especially the poetry classes, I seem to um, develop my voice, so to speak. They always talk about, you know, finding your poetic voice. And this last semester, I think I got into a more deeply personal space. In my fiction class, I'm basically uh, kind of doing my autobiography in a strange way. And that has brought me into, uh, into contact with, uh, with distant past, past memories, and of, especially of childhood. The really strange thing about being so isolated is that everything that comes through to me now is, is in a way filtered like through the internet or, or a telephone or something like that. My real contact with reality is very restricted. You know, we went out to, uh, to Rungi Park the other day for our poetry meeting. That was the first, first actual outside experience I had had since the pandemic. I mean, I've gone to get groceries into the post office, but that's it. That was the first social gathering I'd been to. But the result is everything, you know, because, because we're all so isolated, our only kind of real information comes through in a very abstract way. 
I'm not even going out to hear political speeches or people talk to me in person. It's everything is filtered through this, this internet, which is great. But the result is, as I go back through my childhood experiences, they kind of become uh, mixed in with the experiences I'm having today in a, in a strange way. And uh, I don't know, it, it's, it's an experience I've never quite had before. There's a kind of a mixing of memory and current experience uh, that actually gets a little confusing at times. Like the other day, I woke up and I had suddenly remembered when I was four years old, I got lost at a carnival. And I remembered the experience I had, the feeling in my stomach. And I was back there. It was really weird. And in fact, it was kind of a kind of a celebrated experience because it was a big carnival. And I went back and found our car when my distraught parents finally went back to the car, giving up looking for me. There I was sitting on the, the running board of the car. They couldn't believe how I got back to the automobile and, and found the car in this huge parking lot. All the cars looked alike in those days. You know, this is, we're talking like 1945, well, 1942, actually. But that's something I'm kind of dealing with is retrieving a lot of my memories and a lot of my experiences that have really shaped my, uh, my worldview, you'd say. I don't think people ought to live to be as old as I am. <laughs> I've seen too many <laughs> social screw-ups in my life that it gets a little tiring, you know? Well, just the other day, and I don't want to, I really don't want to talk a lot about politics, but, you know, Joe Biden said we're going to get out of Afghanistan in September. I have heard four presidents talk about getting out of wars, and at the last minute, some false flag thing jumps up, somebody gets shot, there's some massacre like the uh, the thing in Vietnam, and then they suddenly have to, well, we can't pull out now, we got to go back, that was just a false promise. So I will be very surprised if we actually get out of Afghanistan by the, uh, you know, by the appointed time. I still remain optimistic, but I've just, I've been around too long, I've seen too many things like that uh, fall apart at the last minute, because we have to remember Pentagon is a moneymaker, and their uh, war makes money, and peace does not, as far as they're concerned. That's something we all have to kind of take into contact. And I hope that's about all I have to talk about as far as politics, but uh, uh, I am not a fan of either the Democrats or the Republicans, frankly. Maybe in a way that gets into my political poetry. I've done some political poetry. Uh, I wrote a poem about Trayvon Martin when he was shot. Uh, and I related it back to the uh, slave trade and, uh, you know, and how, how we've always looked at Black people as alien right today. I mean, this poor kid in, uh, in Minnesota that was shot, this 13-year-old kid. Now, you know, I don't know. This might have been, this might have been a terrible mistake, but, uh, but many white people in this country, especially in law enforcement, do not view Black people as fully human. And that includes black police officers too. I've come from Chicago, where uh, where that's a very common thing. I mean, there's a lot of racism continuing in the Chicago Police Department. But getting to my poetry is, I don't have much luck arguing with people using logic and evidence. And I'm not just talking about the Trump supporters. I mean, those people are kind of beyond the pale. But I even have trouble talking to liberals uh, about things like the Iraqi war and things about Russia Gate and all the demonization of Putin and all that kind of stuff. And I've really kind of given up on that because I can't make a dent in these people, you know. And I think maybe the way to do it is through art and literature and, you know, poetry and, and, uh, and fiction. My feeling is nobody knows how I came by these ideas, these heretical beliefs that I have. But I felt if I could show them the experiences that led to those beliefs, like 
I made a movie at the 68 convention in Chicago. I was in the thick of it. And to see that movie gives an impact to it that you might not get from the official narrative or the official story sort of thing. So I'm interested in, in using my art to, uh, to somehow propagandize, if you want to call it that. Everything is propaganda in a sense, but to get people to understand how I arrived at these thoughts and ideas, and maybe they might entertain them too, because they sure don't respond to a logical evidence-based argument. So you were a reporter back in Chicago in the time of uh, Martin Luther King yeah. doing a campaign up there and the uh, Democratic Convention that you mentioned. This was after you already had a degree in psychology, I think, wasn't it? Right. I was and I always will be interested in the human mind and, and where it operates. In fact, I've become even more interested in it and that I felt that psychology was the way to go. But, you know, about the time I graduated, uh, I would be looking at going to graduate school, maybe another four to five years or whatever, to try to get a degree. And, and I kind of got oh, impatient with the academic maze running, as I called it. And I decided instead I would go to the Art Institute and study to be an artist. And that was how I got interested in film. They had, a, they had an old Bolex camera there that I took out and started shooting. And I decided that I really wanted to become a filmmaker. So I hooked up with a producer in Chicago that made documentary films for ABC Broadcasting. And I worked my way up. I started out as a gaffer, a grip, the guy who runs the lights and stuff like that, and became a sound man, and then finally became a cameraman and a director-producer. It was kind of a devious route. I've always loved documentaries because the thing I like about documentaries and also about uh, my favorite literature is that it's always grounded in people's personal experiences. It's not like a feature where the, where the scenes are written and then acted and performed. I really like the performances I got out of real people, the guy running the punch press or the, or the lathe or the, uh, you know, the commercial artist or anybody I was interviewing about their life. And to me, that was much more exciting than any feature film. So that's how I kind of got into that. And the possibility of me, me running out and, and, and making a movie and all the physical activity involved in that is a little beyond me at this point. That's why I'm, I'm primarily focusing on the idea of, of fiction and poetry, because in a way, my visual sense is very well developed as a cameraman, and I'm struggling or attempting to find a way to incorporate the visual images that most move me into my, my writing, my written work. That's one of the things they always teach you in, in creative writing is to uh, is deal with your, your own experience, your own unique experience, but the way it relates, the way you experience things through your senses, through your eyes, ears, uh, tactile, smells, that sort of thing. And that's the most powerful work. Uh, James Joyce, I think, said something about the truth is in the particulars. What he was meaning is, really, you know, you read Ulysses and it's about a guy walking around town and everything he sees, you know, and you draw the conclusions because you're inside Leopold Bloom's head as he's walking around Dublin. So you see, literally have the feeling of being the little man behind his eyes looking out at everything and, and sensing his own emotions and, you know, the taste of food and making love and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, to me, that's, that's great literature because it doesn't preach at people. It doesn't utilize cliches. One of my objectives in life is to become, uh, shall we say, more visually expressive in my work. 
you know, my visual sense is, is well developed. Yes, you're painting pictures. I, I wanted to comment <laughs> on your short story about yeah. your grandmother's house and how poignant that mm. short story was. Yeah. Talking about going back to early memories and then the way you brought it back yeah. around to a more uh, uh, current visit. I just thought it was a delightful, uh, very touching uh, work that was in the, one of the arts and letters yeah. publications. I think that was one of my more successful short stories. I mean, uh, meaning that I'm I'm probably happiest with that short story, partially because back at the time when I, this was in Tinley Park, uh, place where we lived. I've lived in about three different cities in Illinois. But when we lived in Tinley Park, I was, uh, oh, well, eight, nine, ten years old before we moved. And that was right at the end of the war. The war ended uh, when I was eight years old. I literally had not known a moment of peace in my life. I was born when the war started, basically, the, the whole, all the assemblage was going on and the reparations after World War One, And I picked up on the fear of my fellow citizens because one of the things we kind of forget was there were stages in the Second World War where we weren't really too sure we were going to win that thing. You know, I mean, if it hadn't been for the Russians, we really would have lost the war. We'd be all speaking German right now and we would be under Hitler. I have no doubt about that. But it's a kind of a funny thing. So when peace broke out, it was a new, strange experience for me. And this is something I tried to express in that short story by way of my grandmother's house, because that was, the grandmother's house was a magical place. It was just a big Victorian house and had all kinds of nooks and crannies. And she had constant knickknacks and things like that around. So I tried to use that as kind of the framework for my own uh, early mental evolution. And uh, again, I'm hoping that, it, that I wasn't too didactic in mentioning that, but uh, I tried to express it through the um, through the vocabulary and the perception of an eight-year-old child. And then as I got older in the story, the language, I mean, this is something I consciously tried to do, the language becomes uh, more sophisticated, the grammar is more accurate, almost like you can see in the story where I'm growing up through the, through the process of doing it. So the whole process of making a short story was very interesting. And again, it revealed a lot of my past to me that I wasn't aware of. So in coming to Jefferson City and, and finding a, a place in the poetry and creative writing area, when did your connection with the Buddhist Center come along? Actually, right away. Uh, I think I've been involved with them for about 25 years, partially because when I got here, I was I was really looking for some kind of um, spiritual community. I've always had a, what I regard as a spiritual community, not always identified with an organized religion, but Monty's temple there uh, was a wonderful, uh, a wonderful environment. And I, I really liked it. I mean, basically, I have about six different uh, religions going around in my head at the same time. But I would say my basic religious belief, in a sense, my basic spiritual belief is very much identified with Buddhism. See, I don't regard, I, I tell people, I don't have an organized religion. Uh, I'm a Buddhist because I think Buddhism is much like yoga. You can be a Catholic Buddhist. You can be an atheist Buddhist. You can be a Jewish Buddhist because Buddhism is a practice. It's a mental and physical practice that, that you can do. And it 
it blends in with virtually every other true religion. And I, I, by true religion, I, I don't mean uh, these fundamentalist Islamists and fundamentalist Christians who I think have really gone off the rails. It's hard to, des to describe exactly all of my feelings about organized religion. But for me, Buddhism really is, is just is a, is a very successful way of living. I meditate every day, which is, it's like a little one hour vacation every morning when I get up, no matter what's on my mind, no matter what's troubling me, it's like, that's like taking a beautiful, putting your soul in a beautiful bath or a shower or something, and it kind of washes all that stuff away. And it also has been proven to uh, be very significantly helpful in your own personal health, hygiene, that sort of thing, that you can, um, it lowers blood pressure. I mean, they've done all kinds of studies of the, the physiological impacts of meditation. And the second aspect of that is compassion, that I, I do try to practice compassion, even against people that I feel are very negative and very harmful. You know, uh, and I don't always, <laughs> not always a good Buddhist. I mean, I, I call people out, you know, especially people like Trump and things like that, because I think that's also my responsibility as a citizen. But behind that all, I still have to remember, if you want to put it in Christian terms, Donald Trump is a child of God. And that's something, frankly, uh, Dick, that I really admire about your approach to life and to people is that you are wonderfully accepting, uh, much more so than I am. And I think that's, a, that's an important thing to strive for is to become accepting of people, not necessarily their behavior. You know, we have to oppose war and other bad behaviors. But when it comes to loving people, well, you know, from Gandhi, I mean, love is a much more powerful force than, uh, than hatred or, or, uh, or violence. So I think you, I think you give an amen to that. You know? Well, thank you, Bob. I've had a lot of help along the way to uh, hone that particular perception. And uh, my latest uh, rendition of that is seeing individuals as pods of consciousness uh, observing the world both outside and inside that they're traveling around with and trying to make uh, decisions or make sense out of what they observe. So that also yields a lot of compassion and uh, a, a sense that, well, let me try a, a line of thought on you. Uh, just sure. had it the other day. It, uh, the line of thought goes like this. Thoughts have me not the other way around. Mm, right. And so with that viewpoint, I have to carefully navigate my decision-making with these thoughts that have me as their carrier. I, you know, I'm the, I'm the one that's going around carrying these thoughts and then putting them out to other people so those thoughts can travel to the next place. And then along yeah. comes somebody else and, and they more thoughts into me, and now I have to navigate with those. So it it's an interesting little twist or tweaking of uh, my viewpoint. And and I, as a lifelong learner, as you are, mm. um, that happens, uh, I'm sure, to you as well. Well, I think Dick, the secret is in your your title. I am not my thoughts, and to me, this gets to the, the idea that I don't want to get back into politics too strongly, but. I have found in my discussions with almost everybody that they so identify with their thoughts 
that when you try to disprove or challenge or discuss their thoughts, their beliefs with them, they suddenly get very upset because they take it as a personal attack on them. You know, there are two things, uh, there are beliefs and there's knowledge. And uh, a belief is something that, uh, that can, be, can change with the times, with the factors, the experience. You know, I mean, I've believed a lot of things that later evidence showed were not true. So I changed my belief. Now, knowledge is a little different thing. Knowledge, well, I think you probably agree that all knowledge is relative to a certain extent, relative to a, a historical period in time, relative to our own understanding of the universe and our own nervous system. But when you talk about knowledge, we're talking about something that, that science can describe with a fair degree of precision and, uh, and understanding. Like It's kind of like the difference between a hypothesis and a theory. Once a hypothesis makes it into a theory, it, is, it takes a lot of challenging to offset it. And of course, some of the greatest theories of, in the history of science have been overthrown by, for, by further knowledge. But there are certain things that, that I've come to know, and I hold those things at a higher level. And very often they're, they're not challengeable because they're, they're spiritual concepts, you know, about my own uh, possibility of enlightenment, uh, my own possibility of, of uh, doing the least harm sort of thing. But I find it these days very difficult to discuss science, politics, things like that. I mean, I even get in trouble talking to people about the coronavirus because there's a lot of misinformation. And I still, I support the CDC and Fauci and all these people, but they've made some major screw-ups in, in, in the way they presented the knowledge that, uh, you know, people have some, uh, some rather strange beliefs around the, around the virus. And I think people are just confused about it in many ways. And it's not because of the CDC or Fauci necessarily, but it's because of all these stupid alternative things. You know, I heard the Congress uh, the other day, they were asking Fauci about, uh, you know, when are we going to be able to get back to normal, so to speak. And Fauci was trying to give an intelligent, measured response. And the guy wasn't buying it. I forget the name of the Republican senator. But he was incapable of even listening to the man, even, uh, you know, changing his own mind. Like his feeling is that, the basic thing with the coronavirus isolations and, and masks and stuff like that is a violation of our freedoms. You know, when can we get our freedoms back? You know, this doesn't even occur in Asia. I mean, people have been wearing masks in Japan for years just to prevent germ, you know, germ problems. In fact, the Asian countries have, many of them have a much better record than we have in the West because that idea of mask wearing is not, they don't view that as a, a human rights violation sort of thing. And I don't know where we got this idea, you know. I've been reading about the 1918 influenza virus, and it's amazing. They went through the same stuff we're going through. Everybody wanted to get things open again after they thought the thing was almost done. They had a big, um, like a Memorial Day parade or something like that, or forget, Fourth of July parade. Everybody turned out, and everybody got, you know, the spike went way up because people just were not listening to the science. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, we're almost in the same position again today. It just... All you got to do is go back and read the history of that period, and you know exactly what we're going to do today and what we ought to do, you know. And today, my guest is a, an old friend of mine, Bob Bolt from Jefferson City. He's the producer and director of DeBolt Productions. It does uh, a variety of old poetry, publication, photographs, videos. Uh, speaking of knowledge, and uh, oh, science and whatnot, beliefs. 
I was just listening to an interview yeah. on uh, Fresh Air today, and it was uh, uh -huh. a Native American author, and she made the comment that if you were to ask any large number of people if they've ever had a dream that came true, or if they've ever had a, a coincidence that just can't really quite fit into a coincidence, or these mm -hmm what we might call uh, paranormal situations, you would find the majority of people have those experiences uh, that they could recount if they cared to. And so one of the problems is that we've been trained to discount these kinds of experiences as, uh, you know, oh, well, that, uh, that's this or that's that. It, it couldn't be this or it couldn't be that. And, and yet there's as much knowledge available to us in those kinds of experiences that science can't necessarily explain if we would only honor those experiences uh, a little more. I wondered about your thoughts on that. Absolutely. I am a devout advocate of science and for the scientific method. And that does not mean that I'm not extremely critical of science and, uh, you know, of the real science being done today. I mean, it's a human enterprise. It's full of all kinds of corruption and foibles and things like that. I mean, there are people that, that think that everything that comes out of medical science or whatever should be accepted, you know, at face value. There, there are two or th well, there are really three things, three kind of objections that I have to where modern science is right now. One of them is the whole spiritual supernatural thing. And what can I say? Science is not supposed to deal with metaphysics. And so that puts a barrier right there. And all of these things like seances and psychokinesis and telepathy and these uh, supposed supernatural occurrences have been proven to exist. People have that. People have near-death experiences. Uh, in fact, it, it's almost a universal belief in, in some indigenous cultures about immortality and reincarnation. And science has stayed away from that. I remember back in, I was in high school, I was reading, reading J.B. Ryan uh, from Duke University, who was the first person to study ESP. I even had his, his little cards, you know, the, the star and the wavy lines and the circle. I don't know if you're ever, if you're ever familiar with J.B. Ryan, but he really set out to try to establish a scientific basis for psychic phenomena. I'm not sure he was always all that experienced, but lately through neuroscience and through uh, quantum mechanics, string theory, we are starting to re-examine the whole psychic phenomenon thing. You know, I'm not really, I'm not really a big fan of Deepak Chopra on this. I think he uses a lot of these scientific things as buzzwords, but I've been reading a, 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 a author, Anthony Peake, who is like a researcher and a commentator on things like that. And he has gone to, to any number of scientific uh, conferences and read papers where there are scientists that are looking into psychic phenomena right now. And I think that's going to be an incredibly productive thing for science in the future. You know, it's not airy-fairy, uh, you know, new agey stuff. This, these are people that seriously understanding, for one thing, the fact that consciousness is non-local. Consciousness does not exist within us any more than the music that's in a radio is in the radio. It's coming through a kind of universal consciousness. Of course, anybody who studied any of the major religions will understand that. That's the basis for all the, the non-locality of consciousness. Now, whether it exists in God or in the universe or whatever. But there's another thing that I, that I wanted to mention, too, which is 
I don't think people are nearly skeptical enough about, about the uh, science itself, especially medical science. Medical science in this country and in the world has a kind of bad reputation. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Tuskegee syphilis experiments and things like that. All these German scientists were repatriated to the United States. Uh, I think Mengele was actually hung, but all the people that worked under him were brought over and they started doing scientific research for the, CT, for the CIA. So that's, a, I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical about science because science is so influenced by money and by politics in this country that you really have to, you can't accept it on face value. And one more thing, if I can, if I can bring it out, there are people who are doing research in, uh, um, in archaeology today that is really it's throwing the whole concept of human history into a cocked hat. We are probably, as a human race, as a civilization, we are probably five times older than, than the deepest estimate. You know, they've done estimates of the, the, the age of the Sphinx and the age of the pyramids and things like that. And uh, Orthodox, science, Orthodox, Orthodox archaeologists do not accept uh, this fringe group of, of people, but they're trying to find that our civilization, they're trying to prove that our civilization is far, far older. It goes back to the stage before the Great Ice Age even. So it's, you know, it's another area that Orthodox science is completely rejecting, and yet these people are coming up with some really amazing data and some amazing findings. You know, a scientist years ago said, uh, science advances one funeral at a time. Because basically, people, old theories don't die of their own weight or contradiction. They wait until there are no more proponents that are proposing them. So these guys die out and new theories come in. I would predict that if we don't go extinct in the next 30 years, advances in, ar in archaeology and anthropology are absolutely amazing, the things we're finding out. I just uh, heard a TED talk by an anthropologist who discovered the uh, Neoleti people, I believe they are. They're a group that was contemporary with Neanderthal and Homo sapiens, totally different human being, small heads, bodies very similar to our own. And they're finding they may even had a more efficient brain than we have. And no, nothing was even known about these people. This guy started going into caves in Africa, areas that have been explored, but he went into these caves and found that they were using the caves, the Naledi, Homo Naledi, were using the caves as a burial thing. They would, you know, practical, so animals wouldn't get at them, but they would take these bodies deep into these caves. And when they explored these caves, they found this species, this new species. It's quite amazing. Um, the, it's uh, it's got to be a, a great documentary how they did that. But there are a couple other things. Uh, the understanding of Egyptology. Egypt is much older than we even had any idea of. And the Egyptians told us that. They have hieroglyphics that trace the, the, the pharaohs, the lines of the pharaohs. And at a point where we think Egypt started was where the great civilization of Egypt ended. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing that, that there was a civilization before the Egypt that we know of. And as I, as I was starting to say, too, they, they discovered a site in, uh, in, in Turkey that is far, far older than any civilization, older than Stonehenge. And it's a, it's a whole complex, I mean, the size of a major city uh, with columns and beams and sculptures and things like that. Very, very high level of civilization 
back at the time when they don't have any record of anyone on the planet except hunter-gatherers. And hunter-gatherers couldn't have made an elaborate civilization like this. It was buried like 15,000 years ago. 15, yeah, 15,000 years ago. It was buried uh, to protect it, but it existed long before that. So, I mean, we are knowing, we are coming to know more about our own history than we ever thought possible. We know more about our own history than, than we did 100 years ago when archaeology was kind of, uh, you know, just catching its, uh, its breath, so to speak. But see, to me, this is, these kind of things are coming up all the time and they're really fascinating. I don't know. I've never been bored in my life, but, you know, these things give me such a great sense of excitement. I just used the same phrase uh, today that I, I can't ever remember being bored, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's our gift, I guess, that we have that curiosity or that interest in uh, yeah. things around us. And I don't know, I mean, in my earlier years, I did a lot of films about uh, aging and gerontology and Alzheimer's and things like that. And it was so sad to see these people who really lost it. I mean, uh, I did a film on Alzheimer's uh, in 1980 or something like that for a hospital I was working for. And these were, these were men, uh, mostly men, a couple of women too, who had been very, uh, very accomplished. One guy was a, uh, ran, a, ran a major company. I mean, he had thousands of employees on his mind. Another was a college professor. Another woman was a, a social worker. And these are people that, that really had it together. But you see through Alzheimer's or dementia, sometimes alcoholism, that the brain gradually starts deteriorating. And it was very traumatic uh, doing this film with these people because it was, I don't know, it was such a horrible thing. It made you wonder about the existence of a soul because these people were pretty much dead and their body was still there, but the mind was gone. And I, I, I just, I don't know how to confront that in my own imagination, my own feeling. Because, uh, you know, I know I'm, I'm going to die. Uh, if I live another 20 years, it'll be a miracle. So in some ways, I, I have to think about how to step back from my attachments. You know, the theme of our show is uh, building a more humane world. Yeah. And uh, I think the way you've described your life, there's been an undercurrent of trying to build a more humane world about every step of the way. Yes, I would say, and, and I think in a way, in my dotage, I think that that struggle has become the most important thing in my life, because I realize the only thing of value is my relationship to other people and their relationships with each other. And if we could only have more compassion and honesty, I think we would have a possibility of a much better world. And to that end, I think the, the singular most important thing we need to do is focus on early childhood education. I have seen so many screwed up people because they weren't treated properly in the first five or six years of their life. I mean, I, I read about Saddam Hussein, you know, number one bad guy next to Hitler. He was given to his uncle when he was like three years old, and his uncle beat him every day of his life until he became a teenager. Now, how can you expect a man like that to be compassionate and human when all he's ever known in his life has been pain and, and, and sorrow and anger and fear. 
in some ways, also Donald Trump. Nobody likes to hear anything good about Donald Trump, but his father was pretty much a psychopath. He had no emotion towards his children. Uh, and the mother was also removed. I mean, she was a, a bubble-headed person. She, you know, she paid no attention to her children. So he was extremely deprivated from infancy. In fact, the perfect example is his brother, who all his brother, all he wanted to do was be a pilot. He wanted to be a, uh, have a career of service for people. And, and basically his father drove Donald Trump's brother to suicide. I mean, the man killed himself through alcoholism. He just decided there was no way he was ever gonna amount to anything. And he just basically bailed on the whole life project. Donald didn't, Donald adapted. He became what his father was. Now, you know, am I gonna am I gonna condemn Donald Trump for something as horrible as that? How can I say I wouldn't be a big son of a bitch if I were raised that way, you know? The famous filmmaker, uh, Jean Renoir, the uh, the son of Auguste Renoir. Are you familiar with, uh, you know, Auguste Renoir? His son is a very famous filmmaker, he made Children of Innocence and some marvelous films in the 30s and 20s and 30s. He had a, a mantra sort of thing that he would always say. He would say that, uh, Nobody is wholly bad. He, they asked him, well, why aren't there any real villains in their movie? And he said, I don't have any villains in my movie because everybody has their reasons. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, nobody gets up in the morning, looks in the mirror and says, how can I be the biggest son of a bitch on the world today? They very often, I mean, Hitler thought he was going to save Germany. He was going to make Germany great again. And I don't, I can't psychoanalyze Hitler, but... I think, uh, you know, I think it would be good to understand how early childhood experiences really make a difference uh, in our people and our leaders and even in our culture. And uh, again, the level of violence against children still is very strong and, and very existent. On, on this coming Sunday, uh, we're going to have a forum at the Unitarian Universalist Church on child abuse, which mm. is, uh, I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion. But, you know, uh, God, we, we have to save the children. That's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost like you want to put everything else on hold until we get a generation that was really capable of, of compassion and understanding, uh, because we have damn few of that, in, even in our political leaders today. You said it very well. Um, by the way, uh, at the Unitarian uh, Universalist meeting that you're talking about this Sunday, is, is this a virtual meeting or will this be in person? And if can outside people yeah, kind of, tap into it? It's kind of half, half and half now. Uh, some people log on uh, through the Zoom thing, but they, they have more and more people who are showing up because we are an older fellowship and uh, most of the people in our fellowship now have had the, uh, the virus inoculation, both shots. So we can pretty much hang out, uh, you know, I don't even know if wearing masks is that important. I think there's still everyone's still wearing masks, but if you have a whole population of people who've been vaccinated, there's very little chance of, of anything bad happening. So I'm looking. I, I probably won't show up for the for the one on Sunday. I'll probably do that virtually, but I will be showing up in the future, uh, like in our meeting room. In fact, one of the one of the things I like to do is I like to show videos as part of my presentations. Uh, you know, I just had a whole presentation I did on, on Russiagate, uh, you know, the Russian uh, business. And I, I showed a couple of videos connected with that. Um, but I mean, I, I love, 
I love doing that because it's, um, you know, it's more evidence in a way, you know, you can show, show a video with a person making a much better argument for the case than I can, you know, but uh, we're eventually going to go back to uh, full, you know, full fellowship uh, meetings and things like that. So uh, I, I think we're going to going to probably accomplish that in the next month. Bob, can people see some of your work online somewhere? Is there a, a YouTube oh, yeah. channel or a website that people can tap into what you've done? I have about 300 videos up on my uh, on my YouTube uh, page. I think it'd be uh, something like Dash Bob Bowles uh, at YouTube. You can probably find me with a Google search. But I mean, I have everything up there, all the way from uh, feature films, TV commercials, documentaries, and experimental films that I've done too. Uh, in addition to just re replaying some uh, some important influential videos that that I've uh, that I've been experienced. Did you ever happen to see Michael Moore's film Planet of the Humans? I have not seen that yet. No, ever heard of it? I've heard of it, but I uh, somehow it slipped by me. It's available free on, on YouTube. You can probably just Google that, Planet of the Humans. Jeff Gibbs is actually the director. Michael Moore is the producer. They sort of switch because Jeff normally produces all of Michael Moore's films, you know, Bowling, bowling for Columbine. So like, he's a very talented producer. And what the thesis of that film is that we have to put the importance of species and the environment ahead of our own particular needs for commerce and you know, and, and, and ideology and even civilization itself, because, you know, we can have nature without civilization, but we sure can't have civilization without nature. And I, to me, to my mind, that's the essence of it. What he's saying is too much of the environment and environmental movement is, is geared around saving our own homo sapien ass, as opposed to, you know, saving uh, the, the, the darter snail or whatever, the other species, I don't know, it's, it's something like 200 species a day go extinct. Mm. I mean, some of these are, you know, they're not lions or, or elephants or whatever, but you know, they're bacteria, they're birds or different species. And as soon as you start losing the diversity of the biosystem, you put yourself in an extremely vulnerable position. I could place, place almost every major extinction event with species and civilizations to the fact that people didn't pay attention to that. They think that even happened with the Anastasi back in uh, New Mexico and, and Arizona, the um, was it Utah, anyway, the, you know, the Chaco Canyon people. Mm -hmm. Something went wrong with their environment, whether they over, over cultivated or whether the, the climate pattern changed or whatever, but they, they disappeared overnight almost. I mean, it's, it's almost like they left a coffee cup on the table. Uh, they just they just packed up and went away, and we still don't know exactly why that. I mean, maybe somebody has figured it out by now, but you know, we we have we have had some disasters in, in the past. The problem with our present situation, and this goes right to your your major thesis, is that if we don't uh, if we are not careful, we are going to destroy the only life sustaining planet in the universe, and these are very real concerns among a, a, a growing number of scientists. Because there are things like feedback loops, you know, like the uh, the Arctic tundra, you know, uh, heat releases methane, methane produces more heat, and it starts adding up, adding up. And there's about 50 of these that are happening, and they can't be reversed. So I don't even know if we can do anything to save ourselves or save the planet. 
Uh, not that we shouldn't cry like hell, but um, but we have to understand the impact we've had on the planet literally since the uh, 19th century industrial revolution. It's been terrible for the planet. And uh, we don't have to just taper off. We got to stop. We got to stop yesterday uh, if we even have a chance. And I'm not sure we have a chance. That's where I differ with a lot of a lot of Greenpeace and uh, and Green New Deal people. We need a we need a strategy as to how to make our remaining days before the human race goes extinct as stress stress free as possible. We'll call it that way. We should be building colonies up around the Arctic Circle uh, just so we can survive a little longer. Because basically, the the tropics in the area between the tropics and the, and the Cancer um, Tropic of Capricorn Tropic. These middle zones are going to become uninhabitable. Already, they're you know the Middle East is pretty much uninhabitable, and I suspect that this summer we're going to have some some cases not unlike Australia, who's experiencing that same thing. And uh, you know, uh, I'm I'm sorry, it just doesn't bode very well. I mean, uh, you know, Elon Musk can send his rockets to Mars if he wants, but you know, I think it's I think it's a kind of madness, you know. I don't know. We had a good run, but unlike the dinosaurs, we we were responsible for our own extinction, not not some comet or asteroid. Well, Bob Bolt, uh, you know, you know the tardigrades. You ever heard of the tardigrade? Uh, yes, but remind me. <laughs> there are tiny me. creatures that can exist in radioactive creatures that can exist. What? I don't know what they're called. They're called bubble bear babies or something like that. Well, they can exist in, in the vacuum of space. They can exist in boiling water. They can exist oh, yeah. in freezing temperatures. They can exist in a nuclear reactor. And they just, they sit there and smile. So, you know, maybe that will be our future. That's how life will begin all over again. Because uh, yeah. these guys, uh, you know, because yeah. there's a whole life system down under the, the, under the earth, under the soil. Uh, and again, this is a, a hopefully... You know, this has happened many times. This is our sixth great extinction, by the way. We've been there before, but in those cases, it was, you know, things like comets and meteorites and solar flares and things like that that created an un inhospitable environment for humanity. But this is the first time when it's, you know, when we're killing ourselves, literally. Hmm. Um, so as I say, uh, what's, what's the word? Uh, um, Martin Luther, remember Martin Luther, uh, the German? said, yes. if I believed tomorrow the world was going to hell, I would still plant an apple tree. <laughs> I love that optimism. I mean, I'm going to be planting trees just as if I'm going to live forever, you know, planting thoughts in people's minds and, and discussing stuff. And that's why I'm happy, you know, to, to discuss this with you and to have the, uh, have the classes at Lincoln. I mean, that's a survival strategy for me, for my mental health and my, my own mental acuity is to be able to, to meet with students, people that are, you know, 20 years old uh, that I would never meet normally, but they have such great ideas. I mean, I love these kids. And to me, that's almost half the value of attending the workshop because, uh, I mean, it's nice because it gives me a boot in the ass to actually sit down and start writing. But it also allows me to, to communicate. Well, you know yourself uh, as a teacher at Lincoln, I mean, I'm sure that you learned an incredible amount from your students. And, uh, you know, I've talked to your students, and I mean, they said one of your greatest qualities is the quality of listening. You know, we don't know it all, you know, so we, we need to listen a little bit, you know. 
Thank you, Bob. And Bob Bolt, uh, the uh, producer and director of DeBolt Productions. <laughs> I thought that was cool on your LinkedIn page. Uh, we're going to wrap it up here, Bob. Uh, we want to encourage people to find you on YouTube or LinkedIn. And uh, you right. brought up some really good uh uh, books and movies and thoughts and compassion and uh, we ended on a positive note although it's we know it's a bumpy ride <laughs> yep fasten so, your seat <laughs> well thank you bob bolt all right dick i appreciate the chance to spout forth all my wisdom what <laughs> one of the uh analogies that i put on the whiteboard, or I guess it was the chalkboard in, in my class this semester, uh, I drew a little boat and I labeled it knowledge mm. and waves around all around the boat. And I called the sea ignorance. Huh. So huh. we're a little boat of knowledge in a, in a great sea of ignorance. And, and there's so much more to learn. Did you ever see uh, the movie Children of Men? In the end, the human race is saved by people in a boat. <laughs> I oh. mean, the boat is like a symbol of salvation and and flexibility. You know, the boat always never just blasts through the water. The boat always rides the waves. It always takes the environment in contact. But it, I really recommend you and everyone else see it. I think it's one of the greatest science fiction movies ever made. Hmm. And it is also extremely prescient. I mean, uh, I get chills while I watched it uh, last week again. I just got chills watching it, how prophetic it was about our current situation. And uh, it's a totally different premise. It has to do with infertility. But, you know, we're suffering from our own particular place. But it's, uh, I highly recommend it for anybody. It's, um, it's a remarkable science fiction film. Well, thank you, Bob Bolt, producer and director of DeBolt Productions. It does uh, a variety of old poetry, publication, photographs, videos. Thank you, Dick. I appreciate it. And friends, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. So please leave your world right. cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. So take care and talk to you soon.